Welcome to the Creative Processes Poetry and Prose series. In this episode, we'll be hearing powerful readings of poems and prose from various writers. To begin, we have Neil Gaiman, acclaimed writer of The Sandman, American Gods, and Stardust, read some of his poetry. Here we go. This was something that I wrote probably in about 19... 89, wow. when, when I could see there were two futures, and it was a writer's prayer, and I wrote, O oh Lord, let me not be one of those who writes too much, who spreads himself too thinly with his words, diluting all the things he has to say like butter spread too thinly on his toast, or watered milk in some worn-out hotel. But let me write the things I have to say and then be silent till I need to speak. Oh Lord, let me not be one of those who writes too little, a decade man between each tale or more, where every word becomes significant and dread replaces joy upon the page. Perfection is like chasing the horizon. You kept perfection, gave the rest to us, so let me know when I should just move on. But over and above those two mad specters of parsimony and profligacy, Lord, let me be brave. And let me, while I craft my tales, be wise. Let me say true things in a voice that's true. And with the truth in mind, let me write lies. This is something that I wrote for a book of photographs mm -hmm. of authors. Okay, yeah. These are not our faces. This is not what we look like. Do you think Gene Wolfe looks like his photograph in this book, or Jane Yolen, or Peter Strom, or Diana Wynne-Jones? Not so. They're wearing play faces to fool you. Mm. But the play faces come off when the writing begins frozen in black and silver for you now, these are simply masks. We who lie for a living are wearing our liar faces, false faces made to deceive the unwary. We must be, for if you believe these photographs, we look just like everyone else. Protective coloration, that's all it is. Read the books, sometimes you can catch sight of us in there. We look like gods and fools and bards and queens, singing worlds into existence, conjuring something from nothing, juggling words into all the patterns of night. Read the books. That's when you see us properly, naked priestesses and priests of forgotten religions, our skins glistening with scented oils, scarlet blood dripping down from our hands, bright birds flying out from our open mouths. Perfect we are, and beautiful in the fire's golden light. There was a story I was told as a child about a little girl who peeked in through a writer's window one night and saw him writing. He'd taken his false face off to write and had hung it behind the door for he wrote with his real face on and she saw him and he saw her. And from that day to this, nobody has ever seen the little girl again. Since then, writers have looked like other people, even when they write, though sometimes their lips move. And sometimes they stare into space longer and more intently than anything that isn't a cat. But their words describe their real faces, the ones they wear underneath. This is why people who encounter writers are rarely satisfied by the wholly inferior person that they meet. I thought you'd be taller or older or younger or prettier or wiser, they tell us in words or wordlessly. This is not what I look like, they tell them. This is not my face. And now, poet and novelist Marge Piercy, with published works such as Gone to Soldiers, Braided Lives, and Sleeping with Cats Under Her Belt, reads poems from her newest collection, On the Way Out, Turn Off the Light. The first is, language has shaped my life. Works in my business. How I've made house, food, machines, clothing, taxes happen every month. 
Words are pointers to fact and lies. Words are how we shape stories that map my own and others' lives. Words go back and forth between us, carrying love and promises, anger and memories we cherish off-key. Words jumble themselves into rich nonsense as I sleep, as vows, are vows sacred or just shaped air? When I lie down that final time, will I speak last words or just shut up and let silence have its way? Who can hold them? What can save them? When my mother died, when my grandmother died, all those memories I never got to catch and keep vanished to dust motes, floating in a skein of silver moonlight and gone. Maybe I'm a poet in part because I want to seize all those memories that flit and vanish and seal them into the perfect resonance jewels of amber, moments transfixed and perfected like Jurassic wasps. Questions I never thought to ask in childhood hang like dead birds around my neck. Never will I know my great-grandfather the rabbi's first name or what his wife was like. How did Grandmother Hannah get along with her mother? Was that who told her all those tales of balms and dibbics she passed on to me? more precious than the doll clothes she sewed from scraps of old dresses. They both told stories, but never enough. Parts their lives edited out, too caked with old blood, too harsh in the mouth like lie. Even though I write 40 or 50 books, my private memories will ride on the wind away like milkweed fluff. Can't you hear them? Listen carefully every morning, afternoon, night. Hear the crying of children yanked from their mothers, torn from fathers by brutal strangers without explanation, without pity, without mercy, locked away in crowded dorms with predators and other kids who know no more than they do. My French husband was taken from his parents when they fled the Nazis into Switzerland. He was scarred for life, always convinced his parents loved his younger brother more than him. Kids think that their parents could have kept them, wonder what they did to get locked up. Will they ever again see their mothers? The government judges them so trivial. Why bother with accurate records? I hear them crying like hungry birds. I hear their terror and pain like distant thunder rumbling. In cages they huddle. Such pain won't discipline. Won't dis sorry. Such pain won't dissipate, but sinks into our names and brains, our history. This is our legacy. How will they curse us? The third and fourth generations, the ones that survived the death we left them. How could we explain the world on fire? Species wiped out daily, oceans of more plastic than fish. That we let a corrupt man stomp refugees, fleeing rape, murder, and hunger. That we let him set blazes no one could put out. We saw the cliff ahead. We were well warned. We took everyone over. This was how our world ends, in lies and greed, vast and numerous maggots dining on the course of corpse of hope. Next, Alice Fulton, writer of The Nightingales of Troy, Sensual Math, 
and feeling as a foreign language, shares her most recent work, Barely Composed. I'll begin with the first sort of a prelude poem in my most recent book. The book is called Barely Composed. And um, there, there's a lot in here that felt difficult to write, and that's why it's called Barely Composed. Uh, it was about me just trying to hang on, get through it all. And I picked this one to begin with, to read right now, because it reminds me in a way of this moment that we're in with the pandemic. We're facing something that we've never really faced before in our lifetime, even in my lifetime, which is quite long by now. I've never faced anything like this uh, worldwide pandemic. So this poem in an oblique way talks about that feeling, I think, although it was written before, before this moment. And it quotes from um, Shakespeare. It reinscribes Shakespeare in a line. I toy with a line from Shakespeare and kind of rewrite it, actually. Reinscribe it. Because we never practiced with the escape chamber, we had to read the instructions as we sank. In a hand like carded lace, not nuclear warheads on the sea's floor, nor the violet glow of the reactor will outlive this sorrowful rhyme. Vain halo, my project be calmed. I'll find I've built a monument more passing than a breeze. It will cost us, Boricita. We can't buy a prayer. Did you call my name? Or was that the floorboard wheezing? These memories won't get any bigger, will they? I think something is coming that will vastly improve our quietude. I'm growing snow crystals from vapor in anticipation and praying for the velvet cushioned kneeler that I need to pray. I made this little sound for you to wait in. I wrote one called Triptych for Topological Heart, and it's three poems about the heart, and they're all very short. I'll read this first one from, from the series of three, the, the triptych. And it's really a love poem. This book is also about love, which is a positive thing, not just about time and death, and, but also about love, which is unending throughout one's life. So triptych for topological heart, a love poem. It befalls us, an exchanged glance, reflective spasm. Is it a fantastically unlaminated question set in flesh? Or Valentine that wears the air as its apparel? If you caught a heart from parchment, is it still a heart? A non-trivial knot where turns of every gradient may kiss and tell? Does the vessel have edges? Or is it all connectedness, an embedding to be stretched or bent? Imagine being simultaneously alive bound in both directions with a bow? Is it diachronic, a phenomenon that changes over time? Without ardor, theory suffers. That's why I'm stuck on you with wanton glue, persevering, styling something blobbish and macabre into something pointed, neat. Love is a gift that springs from an unlit spot, rosin and rue. Even when I'm in the dark, I'm in the dark with you. Okay, well, the next part, um, again, we're talking about the heart as an emblem for love, connection. Say it quivers rather than contracts, fluttery with ruptions. Doctors call it holiday heart. 
Valentine's Day, named for a saint whose head is venerated in Rome, is also National Organ Donor Day, okay? Give anatomical dark chocolates infused with true invariants. With smoked salt, pepper, and Beaujolais in a plain brown box, embellished with praises in a romance language in your hand. Please, none cosseted in plush like the stuff inside a coffin. I'm just praying. Can you find a pulse or dry needle trigger point? Just saying, this fudge has tears in it. Someone's been sweating over this. Listen, Mr. Stethoscope, I'm at the end of my hope. Still, I'll grow another blossom for that blossom-crowned skull. So that's the second, which is more cutting and acerbic view of, um, of love and relationship. Okay, and this is the last one in the triptych. And again, it's got edge. Anger's a part of a relationship. <laughs> I think any relationship that's deep and intimate, eventually one, has to deal with those um, shortfalls and with the anger that comes with being human. So this is the last part. Some give vinegar valentines, no pillow words, just floppy organ thistle burr, fruit loops and craft wire fashioned on a snarky jig. To my pocket prints, by bitch possessed, Tough tits, isn't it? Some call it a day, marked by commodified flowers, obligation chocolate. Some live on clinical sprinkles, asking, where's the feast? The carnelian pin with open work components that let you see its self-pleasuring mechanism, storm hormones, and single pulsing vein. What even is it? Here's the thing. A gift cannot be cynical unless the giver is. I will pay you to test this for me. It's closets vast with steadfastness at best, at least for me, surpass all other closets in the flesh. I'm sending this from my memory foam head. Valentines intensify the surface, heart the depths. E.J. Ko, author of Poetry Collection, A Lesser Love, and translator of Korean literature, reads an excerpt from her memoir, The Magical Language of Others. Yes, I'm going to read a part about my grandmother, Kumiko, who's my father's mother and the grandmother who raised me. And it's a little bit about her time at Jeju Island and when her and her parents were hiding out in the mountain at the time. And her father, to check on their friends and neighbors, comes down the mountain and he hasn't returned for several days now. When Kumiko and her mother came down the mountain, the island was scorched. They passed through burnt villages, their voices lodged in their throats. Many of the dead could not be found, their bodies tossed over cliffs, hidden away in caves were chopped into bits, signs of covering up. Mothers cupped the air with their hands, holding the missing faces of their husbands and sons. Their wailing and screaming filled the hearts of all who sifted through the remains. Teeth, hair, dead horses and pigs, then mosquitoes. The smoke reddened the sun. They covered their mouths, or they would taste the corpses. There were children, the girls Kumiko played with, and women and men lying with limbs bent over each other, 
splayed across the road. Tens of thousands of them idle along collapsed terraces where the islanders once danced, pumping with life. It was Kumiko who crossed the road over a bridge and came to a part of the ground soaked in blood. When she asked after her father, somebody pointed to this ground. She saw nothing except the many faces around her, mouths wide and sullen. One islander, a grandmother, said to her, your father was captured at the bottom of the mountain and dragged into a demonstration. She explained that a demonstration was a public display. A group of men, unfed and irate, corralled a crowd together. They put on such displays on behalf of the country and on higher orders foregoing restraint. What evil was born out of demonstrations? Then where is he? Kumiko asked. The grandmother opened her palm toward the ground, here. Looking closer, flesh and bone, gristle mistaken for bark and debris between the stones. At once the road became vivid, and Kumiko recognized her father. Road, father, road. They stoned him until he was gravel. The grandmother said as though she were not speaking to Kumiko, but a deity who had come down from the mountain to judge her for the truth. Many of us stoned him to prove our innocence. We stoned our own again and again. They stoned him overnight. They pitched blunt rocks harder over days for sport until finally boredom before the body was pulverized. What was exchanged between the police and the groups of men and the islanders, between the rocks and the bones, between the body and the road? What was supposed to be understood? Though they did not know it, the days that Kumiko and her mother spent hiding on the mountain were given a name. Such were the questions raised by the Jeju Island Massacre of April 3rd, 1948. Alice Notley, writer of over 40 volumes of poetry, including For the Ride and Your Enemy's Sandals, reads from her collection, Certain Magical Acts. This is a poem from Certain Magical Acts called Two of Swords. I'm blind with my arms crossed over my breasts, sword in each hand. I seek justice and countervailing sharpnesses. You are in force. And you are in force. I can't help but be both of you. I wanted to be able to take a side and will never again. These blades could slice my skin, standing as they do for our fierceness, or should I say stupidity? If I drop both swords and rip off the blindfold, I still can't leave, for I can't leave this world except internally. Who wants to see us anyway? Two parties or two sexes, two countries, armies, or two religions, two debaters, two gladiators, two contenders for one space. Is there such a thing as one space? Don't you want to go with the winners, you ask? I want this noise within me to die down. Democracy isn't efficient, and the only politics I recognize lies between us, undefined, requiring no casting of votes. It asks that we admit we're both present, all present, in the same multiform space within me or you. I would never ask that you follow me. I will never acknowledge a leader. I am my president, but also I am everyone trying to be with you because I exist and always have. I, the people, I, the people, to the things that are, were, and come to be. We were once what we know when we make love, when we go away from each other because we have been created at 10th and A in winter and of trees and of the history of houses. We hope we are notes of the musical scale of heaven. I, the people so repetitious, and my vision of to hold the neighbors loosely here in light of gel, my gel, my vision, come out of my eyes to hold you, surround you in gold, and you don't know it ever. Everyone, we the people, 
having our visions of gold and silver and silk and liquid light flowed from our eyes and caressing all around all the walls. I am a late pre in this dawn of we the people to the things that are and were and come to be. Once what we knew was only and numbers became, it is numbers and gold and a tenth and a, you don't have to know it ever. Opening words that show, opening words that show that we were once the first to recognize the immortality of numbered bodies. And we are the masters of hearing and saying at the double edge of body and breath, we the lovers and the eyes all over inside her when the wedding is over and the park lies cold and lifeless. I the people, whatever is said by the first one along, angel agate, I wear your colors. I hear what we say and what we say, and I, the people, am still parted in two and would cry to the three. And one says to the dreamer, who are you? Robert Desnos, he says, dead and happy. My intention is to be happy, even if our world should disappear. I see you better than you do because I'm foreign and because I died in 1945, the last time things seemed clear. He's quiet now and the others are focused on the fire, waiting to hear the voice of Desnos again and wondering where the world is. Gerald Fleming, author of poetry collections One, Swimmer Climbing Onto Shore, in the Bastard and the Bishop, now reads The Choreographer. The Choreographer. At last he understood that all his life had been choreography for his funeral. He came to this not through therapy, but during a walk in the woods on his friend Bernstein's sheep farm in southern Oregon. It was January. He'd been invited to spend the week an early Monday before the others were up, he went walking in the cold, the maples still holding brilliant leaves on their lowest branches, his boots crunching ice along the path. He stopped at the pond, broke off a pane of ice from its surface, held it up, saw his own crazed reflection there, an abstraction he was proud to appreciate, and he wanted to tell Bernstein about it. Bernstein, a painter, tell him about the fascinating distortion the outline of the nose limbing a raised ridge in the ice, the chin line carved along the edge. He wanted his friend to know that he understood abstraction. And when he came back into the house, went into his paneled room overlooking the sheep pen, took off his jacket and gloves and rehearsed his quick speech about the glassy ice, he knew then, in the quiet of the house, that the entire speech was meant to plant in Bernstein's head the possibility, the suggestion of his painter friend rising at his funeral and saying, I just want to say that he understood abstraction. He sat on the bed, and in a moment less of honesty than of a long life's filtration, saw that almost everything he said or did in his life after, say, age 30, had been funeral choreography. For decades now, he admitted, he'd pictured the exact room of his memorial. Warm yellow light, metal chairs, a bank of windows revealing a mature garden, wine and hors d'oeuvres on a table at the rear, a crowd larger than the capacity of the place. A winter afternoon, perhaps not unlike what today's afternoon will be, he thought. How familiar he was with that place. It had been his, detail after detail added, for 30 years now, was always there when he spoke, didn't speak, acted, didn't act. When he was a lover, he was a lover in order that the beautiful woman he was caressing might, at that memorial, stand, only at the end, mind you, and in a soft voice say, I just wanted to mention that he was a wonderful lover, and then ten women, emboldened, would stand, and in a quickly accelerating crescendo say, he certainly was, and it would be a moment of great humor, memorable. When he took time to speak with a postman who brought his mail and he asked after the postman's kids, it was in hope, really, that the postman would rise that same day and say, he always asked about my family, always remembered my kids' names. 
When he was a teacher, he taught not so much to share knowledge, but to assemble a legion of potential memorial goers, each of them standing to say, he taught me so much, or he was so important to me formatively, or the world will never be the same. And so it went. When he visited the sick, helped a neighbor change a transmission, bought season tickets to the symphony, studied the Ramayana, traveled to difficult places, all was toward memorial accolade. He brought tenderness to everything he did. He'd give you the shirt off his back. He was an underground scholar. He knew more about John Cage than most musicians I know. He could name the streets of Nairobi in his sleep, and of course, his friend Bernstein's abstraction comment, and his good wife, positioned at the side of the room, surrounded north, south, east, west by his four kids, all of them laughing and weeping. He couldn't know, though, on this clear winter day in southern Oregon, that his memorial would be nothing like that. His wife would have arranged a simple service in the Presbyterian church. Word of his death would not have gone out widely, one of his sons having missed the deadline for the obituary, and there was a storm, brutal rain, dangerous driving. Family and extended family would come, but Bernstein would be in Hawaii, the postman long dead, students spread around the globe, most of them hearing of his death only months later, and no lovers, not one. Why would they have heard? A neighbor would rise to say, he helped me change my transmission, and I still have the scars to prove it, but the little joke would have gone over badly, sounded strangely bitter. But for this Monday morning, he was at peace with himself, the confidence of a choreographer just before opening night, certain that his dancers know their moves, that the stage is clean, the music cued, the lights just right, the understudies stretching in the wings. Margot Berdyshevsky, author of Between Soul and Stone, But a Passage in Wilderness, and Beautiful Soon Enough, reads two of her poems. The first is called No Modifier at All, and I hope Alexi Bernot is here to read the French translation, but we'll get to that in a moment. The poem is dedicated in memory of the Paris massacres in the year 2015 here in Paris. Unfortunately, it would be as apt to dedicate it to the riot in the American capital 10 days ago. It would also be appropriate to dedicate it to London, to Berlin, to Parkland, to many places to mention. No modifier at all. None. No one is not connected to someone else in the city who was hurt that night or dead. It is the no degrees of separation or escape or times we've been born to. Everyone knows someone who knew someone, at least one, in a city of millions. Open terraces under street lamps and a fingernail of moon. Tables of friends, a concert by the eagles of death metal and autumn and blood and no breath and the young. The rifles and a will to end something. Paris for lovers. I open my door to a man I've been calling all this week to fix my door, Hamid, thin as a pencil, flaming as a showgirl. A face from the projects, a face from the once upon colonies. My lock no longer works. These are days when one thinks of closing doors. He stands in my hall, eyes like tunnels and sewers that bend under the city. Last Saturday, there was a carnival bulging in those tunnels. People vowed to dance and to wear costumes and to live unless they died. I wore silk, rented gowns and feathers and masks. You had to be invited. Steps underneath our city, I wore red. Who are you? Someone whispered from the dark. I don't know, is anyone's reply. I'm so sorry I have not answered you earlier in the week, madame. My sister, the baby one, she is, was one of, in the cafe. She came to the birthday for her lover. Her name was Jamila. 
I had photographed candles and flowers left for the murdered in front of that cafe. The day after, I remember that name, Jamila, I tell him. His eyes are sewers, tunnels. He cries, I cry. Destiny, he mumbles so softly, I'm not sure I have heard. He pulls his satchel of tools into my hall to repair my door. There is a noise somewhere that is too loud. We are strangers. He has come to fix my door, holding one another until it is over. No modifier at all. In memory of the Paris massacre. Pas une virgule à changer, pas une seule, pas un seul, pas une seule d'entre nous qui ne soit liée à quelqu'un d'autre dans la ville à avoir été blessé ou tué cette nuit-là. Voilà les non degrés de la séparation ou de la fuite, ou de l'époque où nous fûmes mis au monde, dont nous témoignons. Chacun connaît quelqu'un qui, dans cette ville où vivent des millions, en connaissait au moins un, des terrasses ouvertes sous des réverbères et une rognure d'ongles de lune, des amis attablés. Un concert des Eagles of Death Metal et l'automne, et le sang, et le souffle coupé, et la jeunesse. Les fusils et la volonté d'en finir avec quelque chose, le pari des amoureux. J'ouvre ma porte à un homme que j'ai tenté de joindre toute la semaine pour réparer ma porte. Hamid, mince comme un crayon, aussi flamboyant qu'une danseuse de cabaret. Un visage des cités dortoirs, un visage des colonies du temps d'avant. Ma serrure est hors service. Des jours comme cela, on songe à s'enfermer. Il est là, dans mon entrée, et ses yeux sont comme des tunnels et des égouts qui se tordent en dessous de la ville. Samedi dernier, c'était Carnaval qui gonflait ces tunnels. Les gens avaient fait le serment de danser et de se déguiser et de vivre. À moins qu'ils meurent, j'étais vêtu de soie, des toges, des plumes et des masques de location. Il fallait montrer patte blanche, des marches sous notre ville. J'étais vêtu de rouge. « Qui êtes-vous » murmurait quelqu'un dans les ténèbres. « Je ne sais pas, » répondait n'importe qui. « Je suis vraiment désolé de... de ne pas vous avoir répondu plus tôt dans la semaine, madame. Ma sœur, la plus jeune, elle est... elle était parmi les clients du café. Elle était venue fêter l'anniversaire de son amoureux. Elle s'appelait Jamila. » J'avais pris des photos, des bougies et des fleurs déposées pour les victimes devant ce café le lendemain. Je me souviens de ce nom, Jamila. Je lui dis, ses yeux sont des égouts, des tunnels. Il pleure, je pleure. Il marmonne, c'est le destin, si doucement que je ne suis pas certaine d'avoir bien entendu. Il traîne sa sacoche à outils dans mon entrée pour réparer ma porte. Il y a quelque part un bruit, un bruit trop fort. Nous sommes des étrangers. Il est venu réparer ma porte. Nous nous étreignons jusqu'à ce que ça finisse. Pas une virgule à changer. Pas une seule. En mémoire des massacres de Paris, novembre 2015. The book is called, It is Still Beautiful to Hear the Heartbeat. The poem is called, From the Winter Of. One of these is true. All the animals were making love. It was the day for it. All the other animals, but a wolf who hid, listening to the slide trombone of his own breath, who lay in the dim room, quiet, but for the simmer of breaths of lovers outside. It was their day. There was no lock on the room, only a belief that he was meant to lie in the silence, breathe in the dim, not meant to question, no howling, no questions. He slept, warmed by the high fever of his belief. Once upon a time, there were bodies strewn and none to gather them. It was a massacre. That's why we remember the day. Death had shot and shot and gotten away with it. That's what the survivors said, warmed by the high fever of their belief. It was one single arrow of passion, and Eros was good with it, 
a winner whom it struck loved and was loved in return until it hurt the heart. No questions were allowed. The poison of love was a perfect killer. Everyone wanted to taste that poison, warmed by the high fever of their belief. Once upon a time, there was a peaceful body born who loved everyone and everything on earth and in the air. No one had taught her. She would lie down in silence on a road or a field to stop bullets or souls. She believed in the power of her thought. If warriors came with flags and swords and bombs and God on their side, stop, said her naked body, paused in the path of their attacks. She's on fire, observers saw. And loving her, stop, said the covens of owls, stop, said a murder of crows, stop, said eyes from branches to the east, branches to the west, stop, said the hawk who loved wars, stop, murmured the dove who knew the hawk very well. And her naked body whispered, God does not love warriors. A whisper that pierced their hearts, that wanted to be loved by their own God. There, whispered the woman, looking to a sky she believed she saw. Do you know what to do now, God? Warmed by the high fever of her belief. One of these is true, or almost, a gift from the winter. Jess Wilbur, a recent graduate of Oberlin College, who has done pioneering work for the Citizens Climate Lobby, reads poem Lilac. Raised upon coral reefs bathed in lilac waters, I emerged from the temperate ocean and almost immediately forgot how to swim. I threw myself back into the pool more times than I can count, hoping I'd remember how to keep myself afloat. Each time, however, I nearly drowned and was painfully reminded that I am permanently displaced from who I once was. They say I've evolved for the best, grown more apt to the environment to which I've immigrated, the environment that's made me struggle to shape my identity, the environment that's made me question whether parts of my identity are even acceptable to hold on to. I couldn't allow myself to agree. The moment no one was watching, I returned to my coral reef, wanting to prove myself wrong, wanting to prove them wrong. But upon viewing the decomposing remains of my birthplace, I realized that part of me died when I first surfaced. It was the innocence that kept me ignorant of their insincerity, unaware of their wel unwelcoming aloofness, and blind to their bewitching beliefs. I knew how much, or I never knew how much I'd crave someone else's approval. But then again, I never dreamed that their disapproval would damn me to disapprove of myself. After all, why would I need buoyancy when their intent was to beat me to the ground? Why would I need a gentle ripple encasing my movements when they'd only turn them into tsunami waves? Why would I need a surface undulating and oscillating when all they wanted is a semblance of stability and certainty? It's ironic how I'd give anything now to feel that drowning sensation again. At least then I'd feel something. At least then my body wouldn't be dry and shriveled and bitter from too much exposure to the sun. At least I'd have something more in my lungs than explanations of self-loathing and bitterness and regret. At least then the last thing I'd witness would be lilac rather than shadow and monochrome and blackness. And now, an interlude with Mia Funk and Yu Yong Lee, discussing and meditating on the selected poems. Tell us a little bit about the selection process. We started with Neil Gaiman's. We started with Neil Gaiman's reading of A Writer's Prayer, and I thought while editing this podcast and this anthology, I thought it'd be apt to start off with a poem just about the writing process. Um, really love the way that he segues into it. It kind of just draws you in. And I think that even, I mean, it's wonderful. Writers do need a prayer. They're so often uh, alone in a room. I mean, of course, they're having conversations with their imagination and with mm -hmm. these characters. 
we writers do need a prayer. I think it can be applied to life in general. You know, he didn't want to be someone who was parsimonious with his words and only writing too little or not someone who just wrote so much that it was just, you know, a sea of words that mm -hmm. it didn't have a special meaning. So I think that can be applied to anyone in life. Yes, I think it's just, it's such an earnest, heartfelt piece about writing. And I actually always love it when writers write about the process of writing, because I think that is just a prominent theme and kind of idea in itself. Um, she read lots of different poems. Um, she also read Who Can Hold Them, What Can Save Them, Can't You Hear Them? And it's interesting that like out of all the four poems that she read, their titles are statements. It's interesting, yes, because sometimes uh, we expect poetry to be, well, sometimes it's an anthem or sometimes it's subtle, it just goes into our um, subconscious. I love the boldness. From there, you selected uh, from Alice Fulton's work. And this line, which was just discussing her, her poetry, but was, no relationship is without anger. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'd, I'd heard that phrased. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, we think about love and we think, maybe we sometimes think about compromises, but we don't, I don't necessarily come out and say, no relationship is without anger. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting perspective and it gives me pause. If you read her work and you pull back the kind of emotion behind it, you can see that that statement rings true in her poetry, the two that she picked in particular. What I really admired about Alice Fulton's readings were the last lines of both of her poems and how, how much of a punch they were and how they landed. Um, I made this little sound for you to wait in. And then even when I'm in the dark, I'm in the dark with you. I just felt so tangibly the longing and anticipation, the one-sidedness of the poem, as well as the way she talks about I and you. It seems that there's a togetherness that's almost very final and she's just waiting for it to happen. Yeah, so that is, it's, that's the other side of, I guess, uh, no relationship is, is without anger. Sometimes we have anger, we feel anger towards people when we need them too. It's like a dependency or it's, it's not without love. We only really get angry at those who have moved us in some mm -hmm. way or, you know, those we don't care about, you know, it can float over us. That's quite true. Yeah, I think a relationship is a relationship because you have history, you have some sort of shared shared existence in each other's lives. And if that person doesn't occupy a part of your mind, there's there's no reason for you to get angry at them for betraying you or disappointing you. Maybe anger is um, synonymous with love and care in, in many ways. And speaking of shared histories, E.J. Coe, speaking about uh, love from different angles, love through distances, love across history. Mm -hmm. Even like looking at the cover of the memoir itself, she writes the Korean physically like with the English. And I can really tell that her appreciation for her Koreanness and for the languages that she holds dearly comes from like the history that she has. And I really just like appreciate, I think the way that she translated the magical language of others it was which is is very like i think that it doesn't translate exactly as the magical language of others it feels a little different in korea for me it's kind of like words like magic that's kind of how i would think of it but i love how i can see both sides of it so in that way ej ko's writing it's all the more dimensional to me and all the more um, special and for those who are discovering her work uh, in her memoir and in her, which we should say is a memoir, but it is very much like poetry right. and collaboration across <laughs> generations and particularly also with her mother, including her mother's writings and letters. So we can't go into so much detail, but how she was absorbing those letters that her mother had written to her during a period of separation and, and so many other things uh, and 
also she has this very fascinating um, love letter project where she, speaking of distances, writes love letters to strangers who mm-hmm. request, you know, she's not just <laughs> talking to them and, and writing right. to them, right. but he requests the letter. And, and so I thought, oh, that's, we so often close ourselves off and how interesting that, of course, it's not a physical love, but that is what writing is. And I think that all of these writers share that in a way, their love letters sent out to strangers, you know, the most intimate you can get without, you know, maybe being in the room, but you're being, you're go, you're, they're allowing you to enter their mind. Brodyshevsky, what did you feel about, how did you appreciate her insights into this difficult subject? It is a very difficult subject and difficult, I imagine, to write about. But Margot Brodyshevsky anchors her whole experience and reaction to the massacres based on this one interaction with her and this man coming to fix her door, Hamid. It's powerful the way she grounded this kind of grief that she felt and shared with this one person in this one interaction. While at the same time, you know, she's talking about something atrocious that happened in Paris, um, a city of lovers, a city of millions. There's a carnival she talks about with vibrant silk gowns and feathers alongside the memory of the horrors. And all of this is interlaced with the very mundane, necessary task of fixing the door. They're trying to fix something that's broken together. And I think that's very beautiful. Speaking about poetry for the people um, is in Alice Notley's poem, I the People. We think about this now, particularly with the insurrection uh, in Washington, uh, with, I don't know, I think we're, we've all been reflecting on it. But how did, what did you like about that? It's so weird. I was talking to this about someone else, how on paper, there's not much about my life that connects me to America in the way that I'm, I wasn't born there. I've never really lived there except for now where I'm attending school there, but that's only university and that's quite recent. But even now, like all the way from Korea, I am always just thinking about how this country and its history has impacted my identity and my history. Right now, I feel like it really has culminated into a reflection and kind of a deep open realization that now you can feel history changing and everything's coming to life, I think. Yes, as someone who has, like everyone, had an American culture imprinted upon me. I, I was born there, but I've spent most of my life in, in Europe and all of my adult life and, and before, but you can't avoid it. There's also a sadness because if you make room for culture in your life, we're just speaking culturally, not even just about um, democratic um, ideals uh, feeling broken or those institutions failing us. But when you make room for another culture in your life and there is an extent to which your own culture is erased. And I wonder, do you have a, some kind, sometimes a sadness you have to make room for your own culture and assert its importance. I think this relates to the the last two poems. Um, one, a poem, and, and he's a, a dear friend to uh, Gerald Fleming's, the choreographer. I mean, we heard the poem. It's it's so beautiful. It's about trying to map someone who thinks their life a choreographer. He's, he's going to plan his his death and how everyone. And you think it's so defined, you know. And yet those things that we what he sets up, it, it doesn't come to pass. It becomes a kind of humorous ending on a well-lived life. And uh, I just, uh, I, I've always, it's one of my favorite poems by him and he's a wonderful teacher as well, but it's just about how we, maybe that relates to what you're saying, how we think we can define ourselves. We have a set path, we're, but we're not fixed and life is not fixed. And then um, Jess Wilbur, who is the, the last, and uh, she's a young poet like yourself. I think that she's devoted, I know that she's devoted most of her 
time now to environmental causes. So she came to us through our parallel podcast, which is uh, the One Planet podcast, and she's worked for Citizens Climate Lobby and now for her for her own group, um, educating about the environment um, and bringing together young, young people and older generations on, on this topic. Uh, and But she had shared this poem in the context of our interview, and she's put aside, you know, for the greater good, she's put aside her poetry or not focused on it as much because the looming, I believe, important issue of our day is climate change and you know how do we live more sustainable lives so we can survive on this planet we call home i i, I love that poem and it's again talking about boundaries dealing with her sexuality and um and then relating you know how it's perceived by others and then relating it also to this kind of climate crisis and metaphors around the environment it is i think such a thing big thing that's on the mind of people my age um and it is so so frustrating and I think maybe just takes this frustration and finds ways to express it in poetry. I love how she uses the color in her in the poems. Um, I'm sorry, is just just us just go by she her like her pronouns, their pronouns, do you know them? Usually when we think of like um, like environment, we want everything to be green, but um, she talks about the beautiful like softness of lilac and I think that's the kind of view that I want to have on the world where it's more of a feeling, like feeling safe and feeling secure in like a future that is sustainable. <laughs> and I think we can see, we can feel that lilac if we see the green. Yes, let's do it. And so, and, and you're going to share one of your poems that you had first shared I think it was almost inspired by this other project that we had been involved together in uh, with the neopolitical cowgirls and their gala in East Hampton uh, just tell us about this and how I have my own interpretation on it but I never heard from you your how it's its origins the poem is called you and I think one thing that I come back to when writing poetry and just writing in general is perspective. And I always am I'm very drawn to poetry that addresses um, to you. Um, that's why Alice Wilson's poetry, it drew me in immediately because I always think about who this you could be. And for this poem in particular, I wanted to address the harshness of you and the vulnerability of it as well. The image I had immediately was just of a birthing scene, just like physically coming into the world, how brutal and how awful it could be and how awesome it could be. Um, and I really wanted to express that fear and vulnerability of fragile yet strong baby coming into a world that's, that's very broken and very loud and very demanding. And so this poem is called You. One day you came into this world, tears flushing, flushed herring, like you were opening a door. One pocket scarring, scar pocketing day, you came into this dawn echoing, echo dawning world, like you were opening a red staining, stain reddening door. One lash falling, fall lashing day, you came thunder leaking, leak thundering into this world. It was like you were opening a door. Uh, that's so moving and shocking. I don't want to say shocking, but yes, you do have that sense of the violence of coming into being. Uh, violence and beauty I don't want to say that but it's just it is a dramatic act so if I could I don't have that memory of that time my memory is pretty good but it doesn't go that far <laughs> but it, it kind of recreates that and then you know from the day one I think now you know children have a how do you say we are forced to mature quickly so you have this sense of the pressures already in, yeah. in oh, I'm gonna say it's not from day one I do 
there's a lot of urgency there's a lot of messages sent at one and uh so you encapsulate that um, beautifully and uh it was a great kickoff as well to the uh neo-political cowgirls gala that we'll be sharing about uh, in our forthcoming um episode of this poetry anthology series so i i want to Thank you, Yu Young, for, for putting this together. And we look forward to collaborating more on, on further interviews and, and then these anthologies. Mm-hmm. Thank you too, Mia. We hope you enjoyed this anthology episode. To be included in special podcasts celebrating poetry and prose, you can submit a reading of your work at www.creativeprocess.info forward slash poetry prose and we'll get in touch about the possibility of taking part in an interview for the creative process. Thank you for listening.